This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado needs teachers, thousands of them. The shortage has reached crisis levels in rural Colorado, where turnover is especially high. In Durango, one program finds people from other professions who are ready to make the leap into the classroom. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visits the Betcher Teacher Residency. Dusty Mars spent years as an oil production foreman in Ignacio. He oversaw a thousand wells. But halfway through last year, he was tapped to teach middle school math on an emergency credential and found himself with a teary student. She was breaking down. She was crying. She kept wanting to go to the restroom. So after class was over, it was my plan period. Pretty different from life on the oil patch. Came over and we worked on math problems. <laughs> Mars is telling Betcher residency instructor Karen Lunsford about an incident last year. There's a little skill that you did automatically that maybe you've done with your own kids, but it's kind of like you Mars redirected. sort of knew what to do in a situation like this, but not really. He was kind of wing. It was like drinking from a fire hose, right? Learning a whole new profession and, and having to implement it on a daily basis in front of a, an audience that wasn't necessarily wanting to buy what you were selling. And you'll run into teachers who think that certain kids don't belong in their class. Now he's learning solid teaching skills. He's a Betcher teacher resident in a three-week summer institute in Durango, the first step in getting his teaching license. When he goes back into the classroom next week, he'll have a mentor, a coach, and weekly classes to reinforce what he's doing in the classroom. And they're constantly being asked to think about and reflect upon what they're learning in class and how that's going to look in the classroom. It's really taking that theory and then putting it into play right away. Small rural districts like Ignacio, Cortez, and Dolores are tapping Betcher residents. The program has a 95% retention rate after five years. Nationwide, more than half of teachers leave in the first five years. Betcher looks for candidates like Mars. His family has deep roots in Ignacio. He's been tutoring as a volunteer, found he was really good with kids, and tired of the boom and bust nature of the oil industry, he was ready to take a 90% pay cut for a change of career. Our candidates don't feel like they're sink or swim. Durango Superintendent Dan Snowberger sees the ongoing support Betcher provides as the biggest difference between their candidates and those from four-year college programs. They feel like there's a lot of life rafts out there um, supporting them. This summer, Betcher has a bilingual financial planner, he'll be teaching Spanish, a PhD in English Lit, for her, high school English, a ski instructor, he's got P.E., and a journalist, he'll teach U.S. government. They are more prepared to make the connection for students of, why am I learning this? Why is this important? And that's so important to our kids today. But teaching is a complex, fast-paced, high-stress profession. There's a lot for these residents to learn. How should they speak in class? How to build relationships with students? How to manage behavior? How to make engaging lesson plans? Yeah, and maybe having, like, table groups, having to figure it out along... Everything residents learn, they have to put into practice, as if they're in the classroom. This group is planning a lesson for fellow residents about the child development theorists they've studied using a scenario, a student who won't put away his phone. So like have them interact with it right? instead of playing it all out for them. Sure. I love that idea. And we could still like use Google Slides. And that is another piece of the teaching practice. As we watch, the Betcher Institute's Sarah Glover explains that we want them to walk away with is that ability to sit side by side and think about teaching collectively. It's a creative lesson, and the larger group likes it. Same with this one. 
but they're a little tougher on the presentation from Dusty Mars's group. I noticed that when you were kind of glued to the computer, it was a little bit dull, but as soon as you got... Betcha residents in the traditional program will have more time to fine-tune the art of teaching. They spend a year in a classroom with a master teacher before being released on their own. But the teacher shortage is so dire, residents like Dusty Mars and Patrick Armijo have been hired by districts straight into the classroom. Armijo was laid off from his job as an editor at the Durango Herald. I'm not sure how well I'm going to relate to the kids if I'm going to be this really uh, kind of antique standing in front of the class. When I was in high school, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have laptops or tablets. It was a pen, a pencil, and a pad, you know, and a big fat textbook that weighed 50 pounds. So. For some, the change in career is a pay cut. For others, it means benefits for the first time. For Mars and Armijo, it's also the chance to make an impact in a student's life. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Now, another effort to solve the teacher shortage. State officials are holding town halls all over Colorado, Denver to Ridgeway, to pinpoint causes and just maybe find some novel solutions. This tour has been Kim Reed's summer homework. She leads the Colorado Department of Higher Education and joins us from her office in Denver. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Ryan. Happy to be with you. So you've already traveled to Colorado Springs and Leadville and still to come Ignacio, Lyman, Los Animas. What's the most eye-opening thing you've heard on this tour? Well, one of the things that I think is very important to realize is that this is a very, very important issue. And so when we ask communities, tell us um, what's happening in your community regarding teacher retention, regarding teacher recruitment, people are eager to speak with us. We think that's important because we think this needs a community solution. It should not be just educators talking with and about educators. So I'm excited about the amount of energy and attention uh, that we see. We also have a survey, as you know, where people can participate and answer questions if they cannot come uh, to the town halls. And I just checked today. We have over 5,600 respondents so far. And so I think there's a lot of interest around how do we address these important issues. And as you know, teachers are the profession, uh, teaching is the profession that makes all others possible. So it is important that we get this right. So it sounds like there is agreement that the teacher shortage is a problem no matter where you go in the state. Uh, What's the difference, do you think, between rural and urban school districts? Uh, I mean, I know that pay is often better for teachers on the front range, for instance. Yes. um, Housing, obviously, is a big challenge. When we talk with the rural superintendents a couple of weeks ago, they talked quite a bit about uh, the pay differentiation, but also the scarcity of housing and affordable housing. Uh, They also talked about uh, the challenge of attracting uh, teachers to communities that are very much unlike their own. So when I talked to the DPS superintendent, for example, and said, tell me about the teacher shortage, he said, we don't have a teacher shortage problem. We have a diverse teacher shortage problem. Uh, But then you talk to rural communities, they may say, you know, we don't have a STEM educator. We need a science teacher or we need a math teacher. And so um, the shortage is different in different places. But the impact of not addressing the issue is 
going to be the same. Our students will not reach their full academic potential if we do not lean into this issue and try to figure out how to get great teachers in front of every classroom. Meaning what? That class sizes grow, they don't get as much individual attention, teachers feel overwhelmed. What are the, what are the palpable uh, effects of not having enough teachers? All of the things you mentioned and more. So when we think about this knowledge economy and this technology-driven economy, we are expecting uh, students to come who have analytical skills, who have the ability to uh, process information in new and different ways. And, of course, as we are receiving them into the post-secondary education, uh, we are thinking about how to prepare them uh, to think and to, to grow and to learn and to really be prepared for jobs that don't exist today. And so that pipeline is diminished in terms of full potential if young students are not receiving that very important foundation uh, of academic support uh, that allows them to move forward. We need more STEM educators. We need more STEM professionals. And so for students to see individuals who look like them and who do not, to see individuals who, like the one you just mentioned before, who have uh, been in the oil patch or who are doing other kinds of jobs and are now teachers, I think that it is great for students. It, it encourages them to think about what can I be when I uh, grow up and how can I uh, assist in making my community and my state better than it was before. You've mentioned, so all of these things are important. You've mentioned STEM. That's, of course, science, technology, engineering, and math. Some people have added an A to that steam and thrown in arts as well as a priority. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about what you told us are the obstacles to attracting teachers in rural areas. So you mentioned housing. That's interesting. I would have thought that would have been more of an issue in, in urban areas where housing is just so expensive and unattainable. What, what does the housing problem look like in rural Colorado? Uh, Similar, obviously, in terms of um, housing stock and affordable housing stock. So when we talk with the rural um, uh, superintendents, and particularly some from resort rural communities, they Ah. talked about a lack of affordable housing, uh, just as you would hear in an urban community as well. And so... There are similar uh, similar challenges, not just pay, but also, you know, affordability of housing uh, in these communities. Right. I know that's particularly true in the Vale area, the Roaring Fork Valley, of course, where, as you say, they are resort rural communities. You mentioned pay there. Uh, you know, in, in any other profession, the answer to a shortage would be just pay more. But I gather that, that uh, many districts just don't have that flexibility. That, that can't be the silver bullet. Well, we do know that the pay is important, and we are hearing from many in the um, town hall meetings around the importance of considering a statewide salary schedule. Uh, what you see across the country is what we see here in Colorado, a cherry-picking of great teachers between rural and urban communities because of pay differential, uh, surrounding states that pay more, and so they are attracting teachers away. Uh, And so we have to think about how do we address that. We have even heard people talk about this as a federal uh, uh, issue that should be addressed. Obviously, Colorado is not unique. We have teacher shortage across the country. And so some people have said, is it time for a GI Bill for teachers? Do we need to elevate this profession to that level where you have that kind of support? Uh, And so those are all of the kinds of conversations that we're hearing right now. Also, I want to mention in rural communities this idea of grow your own. 
Uh, so the idea that you are really looking for teachers who have an anchor to your community is very important. And we heard from many superintendents that we think they think the solution is really grow your own programs, whether it's paraprofessionals into the teaching prof- prof- uh, profession, teacher cadet programs for middle and high school students to get them interested early in being teachers and being teachers in their own community. Uh, Or, like you mentioned, this residency program where people are career changers, have had fabulous careers, and are now coming back into the teaching profession because they want to give back. All of those things matter, but this idea of growing your own, I think, is very important for us to look into. And in that way, it's not rural areas recruiting from way outside. Uh, I know that Jenny Brundine some months ago actually talked about attracting teachers from abroad to rural communities. That's how desperate some of them have gotten is that they look globally. You're saying to potentially grow their own through a cadet program, for instance. You mentioned there the, the notion of like a statewide teacher pay scale. What do you, what do you mean by that? And ha- has that been rolled out anywhere else? Um, So what we heard is that this pay issue is such a challenge that many in various town hall meetings have said, maybe it's time for us to have a state solution. And then with the GI Bill conversation, is it time for us to have a federal solution? So, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, where are the the potential um, points uh, of solution for this challenge? And so that's why I think we're hearing some people say, should we have a statewide schedule, a salary schedule? Should it be differentiated for housing because it costs more to live in different areas? But the bottom line is this, this, this. Teachers teachers need to be uh, supported. They want to make sure that we recognize that this is a profession and an important one uh, and that the pay and the policies need to align to make sure that more people are interested in teacher uh, being teachers and that we are retaining teachers, because as you know, we have a both-and problem. Right. It's a we question not just of, of, of attracting teachers to the profession, but of keeping the ones you have. And some communities like Aspen and Glenwood Springs have offered subsidized housing for teachers as an inducement. Um, but it, it sounds like, gosh, you might also need to change the perception of the teaching profession uh, as a whole, is is this a marketing effort in some regards? Uh, I think it's a value effort, right? Do we value our teachers? Do we recognize that um, what they do matters, and it matters every single day, and it matters to the human capital development of every young person in the state? I don't think anyone would argue with with the teaching being perceived that way. Uh, any ask anyone about a role that a teacher played in their life, and they're likely to come up with a, a story like that. And yet, and yet d- teachers do not feel that, they're prof- that they are supported as a profession. They say that these people see this as a job and not a profession. So there's obviously a disconnect. We all can cite an amazing teacher who made a difference in our lives. And yet when you ask teachers, they say, we do not feel supported. We do not feel valued. So let's wrap up, um, Kim, with this question of retention. So assuming you... You, you get them in the first place. Have you heard a novel idea on this tour for keeping them? I don't know that it's a novel idea, but it obviously is a common sense idea, which is strong mentors, master teachers, and making sure that they uh, are well supported. Uh, you can't just throw them in the deep end and say, go get it. Uh, enlighten students and, um, you know, affect great minds. I think we have to make sure that we are uh, supporting our teachers every step of the way. 
And so at every town hall meeting, we've heard the importance of uh, either thinking about a residency program like doctors or thinking about making sure that there are master teachers who are supporting these new incoming teachers and then the opportunity for the new teachers in three years to become the master teachers. So there's a ladder of progress there and support for them. But obviously, there's many, many issues that we have to address, but we are very much interested in leaning into these with our Department of Education partners, because this is very important work. We're talking about the future of our young people and certainly the strength of our economy. Uh, And so I'm excited that there are so many people who have attended the town hall meetings, and I hope that for those of you uh, who are listening today will also be interested and find out how to attend town hall meetings, share their ideas on survey, and participate because we need a community solution yeah, I'll say to that ensure we have that a, we have great teachers. We have a link at cprnews.org to the online survey if you can't make one of the physical town halls. Kim, thank you for being with us. She's Kim Reed, head of the Colorado Department of Higher Education, and she and other education officials are on a quest to solve Colorado's teacher shortage. You can see where they are headed next in the state if you'd like to be in person at one of these town halls at cprnews.org as well. A Colorado meatpacking plant discriminated against Muslim workers and may have even violated the Civil Rights Act by refusing prayer breaks. That decision was handed down last week by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. From here, the workers may be able to recoup lost wages. Reporter Luke Runyon of Harvest Public Media and KUNC Public Radio is following this story. And Luke, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. You've reported that prayer had been allowed at this Cargill plant in Fort Morgan, but something changed in December 2015, and it resulted uh, eventually in the firing of around 150 Somali workers. Uh, Take us back to, to that time. What happened? So the dispute flared up during the second shift in late December of 2015. There was a a small group of workers, almost all of whom are of Somali descent, practicing Muslims, and they had asked their supervisor for a prayer break. And these breaks are are pretty commonplace at the plant. They've been part of Cargill policy for years. They even had a little prayer room on site at the plant for workers. But that night, the workers said the supervisor told them that when they asked to leave their meat cutting line to go pray, that the policy had changed um, and that they couldn't take their prayer, prayer break and so that they had to keep working. Those Somali workers chose to leave anyway. They walked out, that small group. And then that original incident snowballed over the next couple days with more than 150 uh, Muslim Somali workers joining that original group and refusing to go to work until the company clarified exactly what its prayer policy was. Eventually, I believe Cargill cited its no-call, no-show policy in firing those workers who were protesting. Uh, The company has maintained, I, I think, all along that its policy never changed, and this was all a, a misunderstanding, I guess. Yeah, that was kind of the Cargill line from the very beginning, was that this was just a big misunderstanding, and these workers weren't hearing the supervisor correctly. What, what do you make of that? Um, it's, it seems like a rather pivotal misunderstanding that went on to include you know, a number of courts weighing in on the question. Yeah, the 
they said that these plants are loud, that the Somali workers don't speak English as their first language, and that maybe this whole thing was just a case of something getting lost in translation. Um, and that's still what you hear from the Cargill management, even after this string of decisions. Um, they put out a statement after this most recent ruling saying that Cargill has a long-standing commitment to inclusion and diversity and that they respect religious freedom and expression um, and that they do follow the law. I'll say that the state of Colorado investigated these claims and also sided with the employees. Uh, but this EEOC ruling took it further and didn't mention just Cargill, but the, the Teamsters Union as well. Yeah, and the state decision happened because the employees had sought unemployment benefits because of wrongful termination after that mass firing. That request went before the state's labor department, and they were awarded those benefits. Um, and the state and its decision said that Cargill seemed to have changed its rules on prayer breaks. Uh, but back to the Teamsters and the EEOC, yeah. the most recent finding brings that labor union into the fold, too, which is somewhat rare. Um, the Teamsters represent more than 1,500 workers at the Fort Morgan plant. And this tension popped up during a reporting trip that I took to Fort Morgan. There was this tension between the fired workers and the company, obviously, but also this tension within the union. And to get a better sense of that, you kind of have to understand the demographics of what a modern meatpacking plant looks like. They're a real diverse cross-section of rural America. You have African Muslim refugees working right alongside Latino workers from Mexico who've been there maybe for multiple generations. You also have Latino workers from Central America who maybe are newer arrivals. And then you have mostly white, middle-class supervisors, inspectors, management. So these plants are really, really diverse the complaint from Somali workers in the Fort Morgan case was that the union failed to come to their aid when they needed them and asked for support and that they failed to do so because of discriminatory beliefs about their race, ethnicity, religious identity. At the time of the walkout, there were no Somali workers in union leadership at the plant, and they felt like their interests just were not being represented by the union that was supposed to stand up for them. Is this just an isolated incident or do you think this is reflective of meat packing plants in general? I think this case is somewhat unique just because of how many workers were fired in the process. But this is something that's becoming a, a pretty common occurrence in industries where Muslim workers and particularly refugee workers are making up larger shares of the workforce. So just a couple weeks after the Fort Morgan incident, a similar dispute happened in rural Wisconsin, where more than 50 Muslim workers walked out over prayer breaks at an equipment manufacturer. Um, workers for Amazon, the big retail giant, have protested there over the lack of prayer accommodations in some of their warehouses. And honestly, this isn't all that new of a problem either. There were walkouts and mass firings over prayer breaks at meatpacking plants in Grand Island, Nebraska, and in Greeley here in Colorado in 2008. How has the union responded to some of what you said there? I reached out to the Teamsters and haven't heard back, and I've seen other stories where that's a similar case. Okay. What happens now, Luke Runyon? So we mentioned that uh, there could be recouping of lost wages. Any chance that this would be a restoration of their jobs or have most of the 150 moved on? The 
parties in this Fort Morgan case, they could enter into what the EEOC calls conciliation, which is basically a way for everyone to get some of what they want. Uh, It's a form of mediation. And the conciliation process here could include compensation to the fired workers for wages they lost on the job. But Cargill hasn't said yet whether or not they're going to be participating in that process. They said they want to ask the EEOC Um, some questions to, quote, get a better understanding for the basis of that initial determination. And that could yield some sort of appeal, and they'll have 30 days to file that. But in terms of getting their jobs back, a lot of the workers who were fired left town. They didn't have their jobs that kept them there. And a portion were able to reapply for their jobs. Um, So some workers went back to the company and others left town completely. Very briefly, if the conciliation process that you talk about under the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, if that doesn't roll forward, what what would happen then? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, this this is a... a a process that's sort of evolving. Um, This filing that the EEOC could eventually bring a lawsuit against the company. This was uh, just a complaint that was filed with the EEOC. If parties don't want to cooperate, it could be a case where the EEOC could file a lawsuit on behalf of the workers. This year's old story continues. Luke, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thank you. Luke Runyon reports for Harvest Public Media and is based at KUNC Public Radio in Greeley. You can find links to his reporting at cprnews.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And the next voice you'll hear was one of the most trusted in America. The war has ended. Peace has come. But now, we think of that atomic bombing. The mere start and drama of it would make us pause. Two blows launched from the sky, and Japan surrenders. The cataclysmic force of the atom hurled once, then again, and the war is over. We've been saying this week that the power of the elemental weapon is hardly to be believed, and tonight we can add that nobody ever dreamed of a secret weapon ending a war so suddenly, so quickly. Lowell Thomas helped shape journalism in the 20th century, even though he played fast and loose with the truth early in his career. Thomas grew up in Victor, west of Colorado Springs, and he got his start in newspapers here. Thomas is the subject of a new biography called The Voice of America. The author is Mitchell Stevens, journalism professor at NYU. And Mitch, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. It's interesting you note in this book that most of of uh, America under the age of 60 doesn't really know who Lowell Thomas is, and yet he was huge at the height of his career. How huge? What place did Lowell Thomas occupy? Well, I think he was one of the best-known people in America in the 1930s and the 1940s. I think he was as well-known as any journalist in the United States has ever been. He hosted the first network radio newscast. So uh, his voice was heard really for the first time all around the United States. And he also hosted uh, the most popular newsreels, which were shown twice a week in movie theaters at a time when uh, most Americans went to the movie theater each week. And uh, I I would say one more thing about him. I would say that the percentage of Americans that got their news from Lowell Thomas was as high 
as for anyone else, including Walter Cronkite and Horace Greeley and, uh, and Joseph Pulitzer, all the, all the great names in American journalism. You say that in some ways he was the first multimedia journalist, you know, before, gosh, Twitter and social media and all of that was a thing. I mean, he used video through his travelogue business in ways that it had never been used before. So he sees this transition from radio to a more of a visual medium. Uh, and as you say, narrated those those newsreels, the Fox movie tone newsreels. Uh, we found one about a well-known American aviator who was testing out a tiny plane. The Flying Flea. Flown by Clyde Pangburn, round-the-world conqueror of oceans. Look out, Pang, or it'll get in your hair. A flip of a finger starts the motor at Roosevelt Field, New York. Weight 350 Now, this is, of course, before news was coming into television sets, right? So you would watch these in movie theaters. Yeah, they'd show these newsreels, and it was really the first time that... Uh, that large audiences got to see what was happening around the world. And um, with Lowell on the radio starting in 1930, they got to hear news from around the world. And with these newsreels, and he took, took over as host of Fox Movie Tone News in 1935, just as they were developing a huge audience, uh, they got to see not only aviators and uh, uh, and uh, and celebrities, they got to see the president of the United States. And crucially, in the late 1930s, they saw Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin and, uh, and the events leading up to uh, World War II. Well, Lowell Thomas's first news job was with his hometown's only newspaper. He was 19 when he went to work for the Victor Record in Victor, Colorado. And he was, I think, the only employee. So he essentially was putting the paper out himself. And it was a lot of if it bleeds, it leads kind of stuff. Um, what were some examples you found of the news he covered in Tiny Victor, this former gold rush town? Well, here are some of the headlines for uh, Lowell's newspaper. Uh, Blood-stained clothes are found. Male man falls in fit on street. Woman scared, <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of his uh, big exclusives was the fact that the uh, the local mayor's nephew had been arrested for a shooting in Denver, uh, and un unfortunately, the man shared a last name with the local mayor but was not the local mayor's nephew. And then, then Lowell almost became one of these tabloid stories himself because the mayor apparently came after him with a gun. Oh, my. Uh, well, it, it certainly has a, a, a yellow or like sensationalized quality to it. Was, was that pretty common then? It was pretty common. And, you know, Lowell's next stop on the, uh, uh, on the journalistic... Uh, Road was Denver, Colorado, and similar stories were being covered. And then he ended up uh, for a couple of years while going to law school uh, reporting for Chicago newspapers, which may have been uh, as wild as the press was anywhere in the United States ever. And uh, so, yes, that was pretty typical uh, sensationalism. Sensationalism has always been a part of journalism, but in American journalism, it was uh, running strong. 
in these days when Lowell was cutting his teeth as a journalist. Indeed, he left Colorado to pursue a law degree in Chicago. Uh, He had, prior to that, met his future wife as an undergraduate at the University of Denver. Uh, But law really was not what carried his career journalism was. And a, a pivotal point in Lowell Thomas's career was when he decided to go abroad as a self-proclaimed war correspondent uh, during the First World War. He, he found investors to start Thomas Travelogues Incorporated and hired a film cameraman, you know, early moving pictures again. Uh, they set out for Europe. Eventually, Thomas and his cameraman, Harry Chase, wound up in the Middle East. Why was that such a significant turning point? for him professionally? Well, he he went to the Middle East when there were pretty much no other American journalists. And I have to put journalists in quotes because Lowell was working for himself, essentially, in the Middle East. And he stumbled upon a blue-eyed, beardless fellow wandering around Jerusalem in Arab robes. And uh, Lowell had a pretty good nose for news, and he knew this was a story. And he was able to convince T.E. Lawrence uh, that uh, to invite him out to Arabia. And Lowell was the one and only journalist to get the story of Lawrence of Arabia leading or maybe leading or participating in the Arab revolt that was part of uh, World War I. Uh, and uh, and he, he lived off that story for years afterwards in a multimedia travelogue that appeared around the world before two million people in a book which was a huge bestseller, the first of the Lawrence of Arabia books. So that really gave his career a big boost. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Mitchell Stevens, who's written The Voice of America. It's about Lowell Thomas, who grew up in Victor, Colorado, and what Stevens calls the invention of 20th century journalism. Uh, So, Mitchell, in 1930, Thomas gets the next big opportunity in his journalism career. He replaced Floyd Gibbons as host of a radio news show at CBS. And as a radio journalist, Thomas honored facts and the truth. What led him to make that shift, especially given the history of embellishment we've talked about? One thing was letters. Uh, He realized pretty quickly that if he got something wrong, a letter would be sent to NBC, his network. He was also on CBS for a while simultaneously, and to his sponsor. And that became pretty uncomfortable. So from that point on, when Lowell was doing the news formally on radio or in newsreels, he really did make an effort to get things straight. When he was telling the story of his life, uh, that it was a little different. Which perhaps makes it difficult to write a biography of him, huh? Well, there's nothing a biographer likes more than a memoir to correct. And Lowell's two-volume memoir gave me lots of opportunities. Uh, No, he was not being shot at there. No, he was, uh, you know, not the first to do this. No, he was not riding camels with Lawrence into into battle. So, uh, yeah, so – but there – and he did leave a lot of letters and diaries so where where he was more honest and you could figure out what went on. 
Lowell Thomas was also known for his on-air bloopers, like this one in which he's talking about a woman that once had the moniker Dolly Dimples, the world's most beautiful fat lady. That was the billing Mrs. Geyer used when she weighed 555 pounds. Count them, 555 pounds. Now a svelte 122. She tells in her book how she did it, following the advice of a doctor who told her after a near-fatal uh, uh, heart attack to diet or die. The secret of effective weight loss, massive willpower, says Mrs. Geyer, adding that her own willpower was strengthened by the memory <laughs> Well, anyhow. Maybe you caught that, his accidental utterance of the word farts. Um, He cracks up again later in the same segment. Uh, Thomas had a a specific style on air, and uh, I don't want to just point out, you know, bloopers as the thrust of, of what he was known for, because in the introduction, we heard him describing those bombs that that hit Japan, the nuclear bombs, and, and he's really quite poetic as well. Yeah, he, and he's a, he was a storyteller, an entertainer, as well as a journalist, and like good storytellers and good entertainers, he had a wonderful sense of humor. He uh, began the practice of ending each newscast with a lighter story, a kicker, we call him in the business, and uh, and he and he was known for cracking up on the air, which is something that Walter Cronkite and Tom Brokaw never did. And uh, and his news writers used to purposely write double entendres into the script to see if they could get him to start laughing. <laughs> um, w- would you say that the trajectory of his career is the professionalizing of journalism? I mean, you point to some pretty unprofessional stuff there. I think the tra- I think his great contribution to journalism was uh, establishing that network newscasts, and he took over the first network newscast, and for a while was the only network newscaster on NBC and CBS, that these newscasts would be nonpartisan. Uh, Later, he had competitors who tried a much more opinionated approach. But Thomas was very concerned with playing it down the middle. And this really became the dominant style of uh, network, radio, and television news in the 20th century. And, And I think it also became the style of a lot of newspaper journalism in the 20th century. It is what I think we call traditional journalism today. And I think it's what... uh, what people are dealing with is they look to new forms of journalism, some of them unpleasant, some of them maybe a little bit more interested in getting at the truth than just saying, well, here's what the Republicans say and here's what the Democrats say. Well, Lowell Thomas died in 1981. He was 89 years old. And I thought we might wrap up on his farewell radio broadcast in 1976 uh, on CBS. Instead of my usual so long until tomorrow or until Monday, since this is Friday, tonight it will simply be, here's to all of you, so long. So long, Mitchell Stevens. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
Mitchell Stevens has written The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism. Thomas spent his formative years in Colorado. You can read an excerpt of the book at cprnews.org. And if you're ever in Victor, Colorado, there's a museum named for Thomas. They called him a gentle giant. His nickname was Groove. Don Baylor, the first manager of the Colorado Rockies, will be honored tonight at Coors Field. Baylor died last week of cancer. He played in the major leagues for almost 20 seasons and was an American League MVP with the California Angels. Later, he helped lead the Minnesota Twins to a World Series championship. Baylor the time run at the plate with Gaetti at second. To deep left field, and that one is gone! Don Baylor's first home run as a twin. Don Baylor was 68, and with us now, longtime baseball columnist Tracy Ringlesby. He spoke at Baylor's funeral over the weekend. And uh, Tracy, welcome to the program. Hey, nice to be here. What's an anecdote you told about him at the funeral? Yeah, I think the thing I talked about there was uh, this is a gentleman that uh, that lived in a racial environment that most of us aren't familiar with. That he uh, was a, he integrated public schools in Texas when he was in junior high school. He was one of three kids that agreed to do it. First black athlete at Stephen F. Austin High School. First black athlete to be offered a scholarship by Daryl Royal to play football. And as I got to know him in the 40 years that we were friends, I realized that all those experiences uh, where he grew up was in a, a freedom town in the middle of Austin, which is basically where the freed slaves settled. And it was in the middle of a very expensive area, but they were all dirt roads. In fact, when he debuted in the big leagues in 1972, they still had not paved any of the roads in the, in the little part of town he lived in. Huh. And he would tell these stories, but there was never bitterness on his part. It was always things he felt he could grow from to help make the world and people a better place. And he was always concerned about other individuals to the point that when he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, I uh, I wrote a story that he was hospitalized. He had multiple myeloma, and this named the hospital. And he called the next day, and he goes, "I can't believe you put the hospital name in the newspaper." I go, "Well, why?" He goes, "Do you know how many bouquets these nurses are having to carry around? Don't you think they have enough to do without having to worry about florists delivering flowers here? This isn't fair to those nurses." And uh-huh. I I think that summed him up in that this guy just had been told you have multiple myeloma. You have cancer of your blood. And he was worried about the nurses being being overworked by having to uh, to deal with the bouquets that were being delivered. And that's how he approached everything I knew about him in life. Yeah, what was he like as a player? He was probably the toughest, most hard-nosed guy on earth. He was hit by a pitch 267 times in his career. Yeah. He charged the mound twice. He got hit in the head twice, and he charged the mound both times he got hit in the head. Um, and I used to say, what. Well, you don't ever get upset with the pitchers? And he goes, I let the second baseman and the shortstop take messages back to the bench for me. And he would uh, he would just take off on the first pitch after he was hit by the pitch, and he'd barrel into second base. And I think one of the funny stories there is he was, his best friend as a player was Bobby Gritch, who was a first-round pick of the Baltimore Orioles in 1967. He was a second-round pick. They were the first uh, integrated roommates in the history of Major League Baseball by the time they got to the big leagues. They'd room together all through the minor leagues. Don got traded to Oakland in 1976, 
and they're playing the, the Orioles. He got hit by a pitch, and Gritch was at shortstop, and Gritch is looking at him, shaking his head, because he knows what's coming next, and Baylor's shaking his head yes. And Gritch keeps shaking his head no. And he said, you know, I'm the godfather to his child. We're roommates, but it didn't matter when we started to play the game of baseball. He he was a big guy, and one teammate joked that after he got hit, and, and he did, by the way, so many times get hit with a ball that he had a record at one point for being hit the most, but uh, one teammate joked that after he got hit, the trainers would put the ball on a stretcher and carry it off the field. Uh, just a testament to his size. Um, and, you know, he, he comes to play a pivotal role early on with this startup team in Colorado, doesn't he? Yeah, and I, he brought he brought a, a class and an organization to a, to what would be basically a ramshackle team. I mean, these were all players that nobody else wanted. That's why they put him in the draft. And you know, he had rules like uh, everybody stood on the top step step of the dugout for the national anthem, in uniform, fully dressed, and no, there was no excuse not to be there. And they wore coats and ties on the road. It didn't matter what time they were flying because his attitude was: if you don't have pride in yourself and you don't have pride in being part of a team, and you can't be part of a team, then people are going to even look at us more to to belittle because we're supposedly a bunch of ragtag players. So we have to have pride in ourselves, and we have to to stay together as a team and work as a team if we're going to move forward and change the conception of people. And then in the third year of existence, they get to the postseason faster than any expansion team in history. Um, a lot because of the way he pushed the team and, and his demands that, that everybody be professional and everybody take care of one another. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering the late Rockies manager, Don Baylor, uh, who was manager of the year in 1995 with the Rockies. How did he make the transition from player to uh, to manager, to m- more of a leadership role? Um you know, when this, the sport keeps changing and, and there's a, a kind of old school player quality about him. Well, I think the, the thing that was most interesting is that there was a surprise that anybody would hire him to be a manager because he was the head of the Players Association. Huh. He was a guy, that, he was involved in, in, in creating free agency in the game. And whenever he was committed to something, he was very committed. In fact, that was part of the irony on Saturday is that the head of the Players Association and the commissioner were at the at the funeral. And they, you know, he fit in. He was going to be part of the group. He had a commitment as a player that he was going to be a, a leader among the players. And then when he had the opportunity after two years of being a coach, when he had an opportunity to come to Colorado, uh, he was going to be totally committed to the organization. And I think it says a lot about Jerry McMorris. But, you know, Jerry checked around and found out that this guy was a strong individual, that he that he played the game hard, and that uh, he, he wouldn't be a guy that was going to put up with nonsense. He was one of the softest guys away from a ballpark. But when you had a job and you had a challenge ahead of you, you took it on. It was just like what he did with cystic fibrosis. I mean, he raised more money for cystic fibrosis in the last 39 years than, than anybody in the country with celebrity golf tournaments and putting money into it to try to help kids. Because he met a kid once who had cystic fibrosis. Hmm. He thought he said 65 roses. And so that became the name of his organization. Oh, and wow. the, the head of cystic fibrosis showed up at the funeral. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jerry McMorris, who's uh, the old owner of the Rockies. And Tracy, thanks for sharing these stories with us. Oh, no problem.
Tracy Ringlesby is a columnist for MLB.com. He also has the website InsideTheSeams.com. And we remembered the late Rockies manager, Don Baylor, who died of cancer last week. He was 68, and he will be honored this evening at Coors Field in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.